Now, if you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians, chapter 4. We said last week that this is an important point of transition in the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 to 3 are the indicative. They are about what God has done in the life resurrection and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then chapters 3 to 6 focus on the imperative, how we are to live in light of what God has done. And last week we looked at verse 1 to 3, and I'm going to start reading again at verse 1, but then we're going to focus today on verse 3 through verse 6. So again, this is Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today you would use my entire redeemed humanity, that you would redeem, use my emotions and my thoughts and my words, that you would use me to proclaim what is in this text, to explain it clearly and accurately and that you would engage all of our minds, all of our hearts, all of our affections, all that we are together to understand, to apply, to live what you have spoken, what you have breathed out as your truthful and errant word. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you look at church history, and even as you look at the, the church today, you see countless divisions. That on the surface, the church can be so divided. We see national division within the church. And some of the national division can be inevitable because we live in different nations but sometimes we can elevate our national identity above our Christian identity, and we find more unity and more connection with people because we belong to the same nation than that we belong to Christ as Lord and Savior. So we see national division. But we also see cultural division. And sometimes that can be the same as national division, but even within one nation, there can be different cultures. And then people can exalt their cultural identity 
above their Christian identity so that the basis of Christian unity is in culture rather than in Christ, rather than in the gospel. And it's natural that we often want to worship with people who look like us, who think like us, who dress like us, who have similar customs, similar habits, perhaps even the same generation as ourselves, that we feel far more comfortable when people share the same culture. And so we divide along cultural lines. And so we see national division, cultural division. We also see denominational division. Maybe that's the most pronounced at times. There are so many denominations. It can be frustrating. It can be disheartening. There are are Baptist churches. There are Presbyterian churches. There are Lutheran churches, Anglican churches, Catholic churches, Orthodox churches. You go down the line of all of the different groups within Christianity. Even within Presbyterianism, sometimes they're called the split peas because there are so many Presbyterian denominations with small nuances between them. And so we see division between bodies of believers and that sometimes those inevitable divisions can be exalted above our Christian identity where we are Presbyterian before we're Christian or we're Baptist before we're Christian and it divides believers. But then also, sometimes these divisions carry over into local congregations where a local congregation of believers can become divided. And usually when that happens, it's over silly things. It's usually the the color of the carpet. It's it's how you use the, the building Fund. It's, it's the, the mundane things that divide the local congregation of believers, which sometimes can lead to gossip and slander and so much pain and separation among people who profess the name of Christ. So we see division within the church. It's a reality. And we think of the words of, of Jesus in John 17, 11, where he prayed for unity of the church. He prayed that the church might be one, even as he is one with the Father. And sometimes people look at that prayer and they say, well, maybe that prayer wasn't answered. There's so much division. Maybe the church is only division. There's no foundation of unity. Maybe the church is more like the world, because you look at the world and the world struggles to find any basis of unity But there's no solid foundation of unity that we might claim unity, but it ends up leading to division because there's no foundation. Maybe the church is no different from the world, that it's only separation, division, disunity. But that's not what we see in our text today. Look again in your Bible at verse 4. Verse 4, we see this statement of being one body and one spirit. But then look even before that at verse 3. And we looked at that verse last week. But Paul says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. 
And notice that within verse 3, there is a statement of fact. The statement of fact is that there is a bond of unity among believers. There's the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That this exists as a reality. It's not simply an aspiration. And how do we see that? It's because Paul says that as believers that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He doesn't say in the future try to achieve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says you have a certain type of unity, and therefore, believers, I want you to strive to maintain Christian unity. That's the theme that we're going to look at today, Christian unity. We're going to focus on this question. It's the why question. Why should we strive for Christian unity? Or to put it in the language of our text, why should we strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? And as we look at our text, we see seven answers to that question. Seven answers. We'll look at each of the answers individually. So first, we should strive to keep, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because we have one body. Because we have one body. Look again at verse 4. Paul says, There is one body. And I'm sure that that imagery is familiar to most of you. It's one of the Apostle Paul's favorite ways to speak of the church, that the church is the body of Christ. And this isn't simply aspirational. It's not simply that we're seeking and striving to become the body of Christ at some point in the future. But in a real sense, as believers, we constitute the body of Christ. And the reason for that is that if I am a believer, the Bible says I am united to Christ by faith. I am connected to him. And if you are a true believer, you are united to Christ. And that means that there is not only a a vertical connection between us and Christ, us and the Lord, but there is a horizontal connection between us. And that connection is real whether we recognize it or not. Whether we like each other or not, which we do, we like each other, but, but no matter what we think about one another, if we are true believers, there is a real, true connection to us because we are members of the body. We are united to Christ. We are part of his spiritual body. And so maybe we come from different nations. We have a different national identity. Well, we are one body in Christ that trumps all other divisions. Or maybe we have different cultures. Maybe it's because of our family culture. Maybe it's our nation's culture. Maybe it's some subgroup within a nation. Maybe it's because of our education or our socioeconomic standing. We have a culture. But according to scripture, that, that even if we come from different cultures and we have different practices and different customs, 
that we're bound together in the body of believers, one body in Christ, that that unity that we have. And, and so we could really say that there is more that unites us as believers than divides us because we are one body. It's the same for denominational division, that if we are truly in Christ, we may come from a Presbyterian church or a Baptist church or a non-denominational church. You can go down the list that we are one body in Christ because we are united to one Savior. Or even if you consider divisions in a local church, that we are one body. So you may not agree with everyone in a local church. You may have different approaches to life, but we are one body, that there is more that unites us than divides us. And so this is a ground, a foundation for seeking to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So that's the first reason. But then second, not only are we one body, but second, we should seek to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, strive for Christian unity, because we have one spirit. Look again at at verse 4. Paul says, there is one body and one spirit. So just as a, a human body has... the the physical body, and then we have a spirit within us. We have a soul. We're body and soul as an individual human. And so the church, in a sense, is, is body and soul, body and spirit. That there is the one body, which is the body of Christ, those who are united to Christ by faith. But then also there is the one spirit, And you'll notice that in in your Bible, that spirit is capitalized. And that's because this isn't saying that we have one spirit in in the sense of one subjective agreement on a purpose, but it's saying that we have one holy spirit. And so again, this is objective. This isn't saying that we only have one spirit when we agree and we're of one heart and one mind, but it's saying even when we disagree, even when we're, we're struggling with one another in some way, that if we are true believers, that we have one Holy Spirit. Remember back in, that, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that when, when we believe, we receive the Holy Spirit within our heart as a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And that means that if you are a believer here today, that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And as a believer, I have the Holy Spirit within me. And we don't have two spirits, that we have one spirit. We have one spirit that that indwells every single true believer. One spirit that fills up the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that should unite us. It shows that there is far more that that unites us as believers than divides us. And so, yes, we may come from different nations, but we have one spirit. We may have different cultures. We have one spirit. We may come from different denominations, but if we are in Christ, trusting in Christ, we have one spirit. 
We may have differences within a local church. We have one spirit. There is far more that unites us than divides us as believers. So again, we have one body, one spirit. But then third, we should seek to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace to strive for Christian unity because we have one hope. Look again at verse 5. Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Now, as individuals, I'm sure that we have individual hopes and dreams. Not everyone in this room has the same hope. Some of you hope to have children. Some of you may not. Some of you hope to get married. Some of you may not. Some of you hope to to move up in your career. Some of you may be content where you are today. Some of you may be hoping for a job. Some of you may be hoping to continue in retirement. That you can have different hopes, different dreams as individual people. But when it comes to our our Christian identity, Paul says that we have one hope that belongs to our call. And that means that if you are a believer, you have exactly the same hope that I have. You have the hope that that throughout your life that God will be with you and you'll know his faithfulness and his love. You have the, the hope, the true living hope that when you die, The moment you close your eyes in death, that you'll be with Christ. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You have the true living hope that when Christ comes back to judge the living and the dead, that we will come with him in glory. Or if that we're still on earth when he returns, that we'll be caught up with him in the air, that we will meet him, that we will receive glorious resurrection bodies like Christ's resurrection bodies. We have the hope that we will dwell with Christ forever in the new heavens and the new earth. The joy, the happiness of growing deeper in love with Christ, deeper in the knowledge of our Savior. That's the hope that we have. And it's the same hope for each one of us. So you think about that. We have the same body. We have the same spirit. And we have the same hope, the same purpose, the same goal, the same destiny. That almost makes us the same person, spiritually speaking. If somebody has the same body, the same spirit, and the same destiny, the same hope, they are united. There's there's far less that divides us than binds us together as believers. And so there's this call for, for unity among believers that yes, you may come from a different nation, but you have one hope. You may have a different culture. You have one hope. You may come from a different denominational affiliation. You have one hope. You may have differences within a local congregation that you have one hope. And that means also that if we have the same hope, that we have the same destiny and we're going to be together forever. And so we may as well start to strive for unity today within the church, because that's where we're going. We're going to be with one another forever if we're believers. 
And so the call today is to, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, looking to our ultimate common hope together as the people of God. Again, one body, one spirit, one hope. But then fourth, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, to strive for Christian unity because we have one Lord. Look again in your Bible, verse four. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So look at that word, two words, one Lord. In the original language, it's the, the Greek word kurios, which is here translated Lord. And it's significant that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the word that was used to translate the name of God, Yahweh, the, the Old Testament covenant name. As you read the New Testament, Lord is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. That just as we were talking of the Spirit as the Holy Spirit, so here when it speaks of the Lord, it's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Identified with Yahweh, Jehovah of the Old Testament. But this word also speaks to the dominion of Christ, the lordship of Christ. Christ is king and master. So you think about the fact that we have one Lord as believers. If you were a servant of a master, you would have connection with other servants because you're serving a common master, a common lord. Or as you think about a monarchy, that there is unity of the subjects of the sovereign. You can think of something like the, the British Empire, that I, I know it's King Charles now, but for, for so many decades, it was Queen Elizabeth II uniting the, the, the British Empire together. Nations that had very little connection to one another yet have a, a common identity through one sovereign. And perhaps even the, the image of the sovereign is on the coin, that we have the same coin, the same king, the same lord, the same master. And therefore, we're, we're united together in a common purpose. And it's the same for us as believers, that we have one lord. And that means we have one king, who gives our marching orders. We are arranged into one formation through our Lord, that we have one lawgiver, one set of laws. We have the, the Holy Scripture is the, the word of our King coming to us, telling us what to believe, how to live. And so then even though we have differences, we may have national division or cultural division or denominational division or even differences within a local church, but that we have one Lord that binds us together. And it shows us that there is more that unites us as believers 
then divisa, divides us, that we strive for this unity today that is real if Christ is our Lord. So again, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, next, one faith, that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace because we have one faith. Look again at verse 5 in your Bible. He says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, when we see the word faith in the Bible, sometimes that word can refer to our subjective faith in Christ, that, that I have faith in Jesus, you have faith in Jesus, that there is unity in a common subjective faith that we have in the Lord. But then also, sometimes the New Testament will use the word faith as the objective faith, the Christian faith, the faith of Christ, the faith of the gospel. And that's the way that Paul is using it here in our text, that we have one faith, one central, common confession as believers. That's different than we see in the culture around us. The culture says that there are, are many faiths and that all faiths are equally valid. But according to the Bible, there is fundamentally one faith, one true faith. That's why Paul in Galatians 1, as he's writing to a church that was walking away from the gospel, he says that if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. Let him be eternally cut off if he's teaching any other gospel. And implicit in that is there is one faith. There's one gospel message. There's one Lord Jesus Christ. And this is something that is significant as we think about differences between Christians and the world. I remember a few years ago talking to a, a Roman Catholic friend, and he said that the problem with Protestantism is that it's, it's so divided, there are so many denominations that what the, the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century was worried about has been brought to fruition, that they said if, if, if we break from the Roman Catholic Church, we're going to just divide into countless denominations, there's no unity, and he said that even if I, I wanted to become a Protestant, I wouldn't know which denomination to join because there are so many. Whereas in the Roman Catholic Church, I have the Pope who unites us in, as one. We have the, the church hierarchy that unites us as one. And he says you don't have that in Protestantism. But in that conversation, I, I pointed out to him that, that, yes, we may not be united in one earthly structure of church government. We may not be united under one human being called the Pope, but that we have one gospel, one gospel message that says that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, as we know from scripture alone. And one gospel that says that, that heaven is a free gift, that it can't be earned or deserved, that we're sinners, we can't save ourselves, that that says that, that God, though he's, he's loving, he's also just and punishes sin, and that Jesus comes as 
truly God, a truly man, to, to live the perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, to pay the penalty for sin, and that we take hold of that by faith. And that central gospel message is held by non-denominational Christians, by Baptist Christians, by Presbyterian Christians, that that, that central gospel message that is the, the power of God for salvation does give us a sense of unity, that I have a strong connection to anyone who confesses the true gospel of the scriptures because we have the same central message, the same central confession. There's unity. Even if we disagree in secondary issues, and, and sometimes the secondary issues mean that we have to perhaps work differently and work apart in planting a church. That's a tragic reality of our fallen world, that the Bible, people have different views of church government. You're going to choose one view of church government or the other. You can't do both. And so as you choose, you might have a different structure as you're planting a church, but that doesn't mean that we're not united to other believers who profess the same gospel, the same Lord, the same hope, the same spirit, the same body. And this is also one of the reasons that as a church, we regularly profess the faith that we hold together. And that's one of the reasons that we use ancient documents like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, that we're professing together the, the faith of the Trinity the, the one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the, the faith that has been proclaimed not just for 500 years, but for 2,000 years since the coming of Christ, built on the foundation of the Old Testament itself. And so again, we have unity in one faith, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith. For the next, number Six, we should strive, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because we have one baptism. One baptism. Look at verse five again. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, some of you may say, isn't this one of the reasons that you're not Baptist? It's because you have a different view of baptism from Baptists. And isn't baptism something that actually has divided believers? So can we truly say that there is one baptism when groups of Christians who profess the same gospel have a hard time getting together because of different views of baptism? Do you baptize babies or not? Do you practice covenantal baptism or not? There, there can be differences of how we express our understanding of baptism as true believers. And that doesn't mean that we deny the true Christianity of people who hold a different view. But when Paul says that there is one baptism, he's saying that there is a unity that we have as the church together in baptism. And we see that even in the way in which we practice and we recognize baptism here at Hope Church. That when somebody joins Hope Presbyterian Church, we don't say, well, we have our own baptism, and now you have to be baptized with our baptism because the baptism you received previously doesn't count. It doesn't matter. But there's a conviction that if somebody was baptized with water, 
There are different modes. Sometimes it's immersion, sprinkling, pouring. But if somebody is baptized with water, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, ecclesiastical context being brought into a fellowship of the church, that there is a recognition of that baptism because fundamentally it's not our work for God, that it's, it's God's work. And therefore there is a sense of unity among believers. That yes, we may have been baptized differently. We may have been baptized at a different place within our, our walk. But if we are baptized, that binds us together. We bear the mark of Christ we have the mark of being brought into the visible covenant community. And then if we are believers, we have not only the outward sign, but we have the inward thing signified, being buried with Christ in baptism, raised with him in newness of life. And so there is unity for any believer who is baptized, having the common seal of baptism upon us, binding us together as those who are baptized in the name of the Trinity. So it unites us. So one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And finally, seventh, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, to strive for Christian unity, because, because there is one God and Father of all. One God and Father of all. Now as a side note, Notice that we hit number seven, that there are seven ones within this text. And, and throughout scripture, seven is a, is a number of completeness, of, of perfection. So even with all of the, the ones, there's a unity that comes together in the, the seven here. But we see that this, the seventh is that it's one God who is our father. And so there, there's a sense in which, yes, we, we have we have a Lord, we have God as our King and Master that unites us together. But then also we have a familial connection, that we are connected as family together. Because before we are in Christ, the, the scripture says that we are at enmity with God, that we are enemies of God by nature, that we are, we are under the wrath of God. But then when we repent and trust in Christ for salvation, the Bible says that, that we then are adopted into the family of God. And that through the only eternal, true, natural son, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, we then are counted as sons and daughters of the king. In that sense, Jesus then not only becomes our Lord and king, our prophet, priest, and king, but he also becomes our brother, that he is our brother as we are sons and daughters of God the Father. And just as in a natural family, siblings are, are bound together, they may fight, they may not always agree, they may poke one another, uh, but they are still connected to one another, and that connection is because they have common parents, therefore they are siblings, they are bound to one another. And it's the same for us in the body of Christ, that we are connected to others, that we may have different national identities. We have one father. We may have different cultural identities. We have one father. We may have different denominational identities, that we have one father. 
We may have disagreements in the local church. One Father, one God and Father over all the church. And it says that, that as he works, that he is the one who is over all his people, all the church, working through all of his people, through all the church, in all of us, all of you, that he is working through you for his glory. That binds us together, that there is more that unites us than divides us. So as we wrap up today, I want to offer you three very brief applications of bringing these things to bear in our lives. So the first application is that we should remember this, this unity that we have when we interact with believers in other churches. Remember these things when you interact with believers in other churches. It would help guard us against suspicion of other people in other churches to see that we have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father overall. But then also there's a, there's a joy in this as we think about interacting with believers in other churches. I had a, a good friend at our growing up in high school. He was in his 90s, just a wonderful man, uh, but he was a committed Mason. And I remember him talking about how much he loved being a Mason. And one of the things that he said he loved about it was he said, I can travel anywhere in the world, and if I meet a Mason, I have an instant connection with them. They'll invite me into their home. They'll care for me. We have so much in, in common. It doesn't matter. Everywhere in the world, I can be connected to Masons. But then as believers, we don't need a Masonic identity to have that connection. That we can travel anywhere in the world. And when you meet other believers, you have this instant bond of connection. And I remember that when I worked for a summer at a church in the Czech Republic. We went out to a Czech village and did a, a camp for kids in, the, in that village. And there was one teeny little church. It was the only gospel preaching church in that entire town. Uh, they, were, they were charismatics as well, so very different theology from us as Reformed Presbyterians. And so then you look at it on the outside, and okay, they, they speak different languages, they come from different nations, they have different denominational identity and, and different theologies and secondary matters. But it was incredible to experience just the, the, the immediate love and affection between us as believers, because there was a sense of, of unity knowing that we have the same Lord, the same baptism, the same faith, the same common gospel, the same hope of eternal life in Christ. And perhaps if you've ever traveled abroad, you've experienced that and how our faith in Christ can tear down barriers that so often would hold people apart across lines of division. We can experience that as believers. And it's one of the things that should make you excited to be a Christian. So that's the first application, to remember this when you interact with people in other churches. But then here's the second application, is to remember this when you interact with people in your own congregation, in your own church. But sometimes it's easier to remember that when you're 
on a missions trip and you're, you're, it, everything is new and everything is exciting. But then when you sit with people for, for years, eventually you start to see their flaws. You start to see how their differences of culture are maybe different than you. You see different approaches to life. People can get under your skin. People can annoy you. And then there can be frustration that builds up in the body where people start to gossip or start to start to speak against one another. But imagine how different it would be if we, if we remembered the true connection that we have to other believers. Yes, on a human level, you maybe don't have a lot in common with people in the church. Maybe they wouldn't be your best friends in a natural sense, in a, in a worldly sense but you have far more in common with every single true believer in the church than you have with anyone else who is outside of Christ because you have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. And the more you hold on to that shared common ground of identity, the more those other things fade away and the more you can actually work through those following the process that Jesus outlines for dealing with conflict within the church, that it binds us together. So again, we remember this when we interact with those outside our church, when we interact with those within our church. Then here's the, the final application for today, and this is where we'll, we'll wrap up, that we remember the Trinitarian foundation, the Trinitarian foundation for unity. Because in the verses we looked at today, Paul is talking about our unity, what we have in common among believers. But then where we're going next time, Jonathan is preaching next week, um, but Lord willing, I'll be preaching the week after that, um, if the Lord preserves us. Um, and when we come back together next time, we'll, we'll talk in verse 7 about the diversity of gifts, that though we are unified that we're not all the same, that we have diversity of gifts within the body, that we're, we're the same, but we're also different. And that's important. And what we see in this text is that that reality is rooted in God himself. Because I'm sure you notice the fact that there's a Trinitarian foundation for unity in this text. We saw that as one spirit, one Holy Spirit, one Lord Jesus Christ, one God and Father of all, but as we see Spirit, Lord, and Father, these are not three gods, but the, this is one God, one true God. And so within God himself, there is both unity and diversity. That we find our unity and diversity within the one God who in himself is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that we experience that in the very heart of the gospel, the one faith that we profess, that the one Father sent the one Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to, to pay the penalty, then that is applied in his resurrection. And it's applied to us through the Spirit, the one Spirit who brings us from death to life, gives us eyes to see, and binds us together in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Let's pray.